and welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a podcast about the global economy. It is Thursday, October 15th, 2015. I'm Tori Stowell, a U.S. economics reporter in D.C. with Bloomberg News, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Moss, our executive editor for International Economics News. And Akito, our editor for Benchmark, is actually working out of Tokyo this week, so she won't be joining us, but she is here in spirit. She is. And there's good reason for you to be excited today. That's right. I'm so pumped, so excited, Probably the most excited I've ever been for anything in my life. Yeah, all 22 years. <laughs> That's because we've got Angus Deaton with us on the show today. Hopefully that name will ring a bell. It should, because he is a professor at Princeton University and was this week named as the recipient of the 2015 Nobel Prize in Economics. And it's safe to say in the seven-episode life of this show, we've never had someone of that stature in at such an important point in their life. That's right. This is going to be huge. We're very excited. So before he joins us, let's quickly run through his bio. He was born in Edinburgh, Scotland, and received his bachelor's, master's, and PhD degrees all at Cambridge and all in economics. And he's been teaching at Princeton now for more than 30 years. All at Cambridge? Yes. No Oxford. No Oxford. So it's just the bridge. (laughs) That's right. No Ox. (laughs) His recent research has looked into things like consumer saving, measurements of economic well-being, what a concept, poverty, health and development economics. You know, and the official description from the selection committee that gave him the award is, quote, for his analysis of consumption, poverty and welfare. I was lucky enough to chat with him earlier today in our newsroom, so you may hear a little bit of background noise, but what you'll hear is our conversation, and I hope you guys enjoyed as much as I did. For our listeners who don't know, Nobel Prize winners get a call from Sweden, and for U.S. laureates, that usually turns out to be very early in the morning. Yep. So did you have any trouble sleeping the night before? You know, were you expecting this? Oh, no, 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 not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, there, there, uh, there have been several years when it was a possibility, <laughs> and I've always realized that a possibility is a very different thing from a high probability. Right. <laughs> so... Um, you know, no, I, it's never cost me any sleep. Good. And we get up pretty early in the morning anyway, so my wife Anne, also a colleague here at Princeton, was already up, and I was pretty, I was certainly awake. So what time did you actually get the call? 6 p.m. Oh, wow. That's... Be <laughs> very precise. <laughs> and uh, what, was your, what was your reaction? Oh, delight. Yeah. Um, a little bit of disbelief. Not that I thought it wasn't true, just, oh my goodness, it's really happening. Right. Um, And it was wonderful to talk to two of the, I mean, I talked to the chairman first, um, or at least once the introductions were over, and um, then I talked to two good friends who were members of the committee, Um, you know, one who used to be one of my colleagues at Princeton, and another one who I'd known for many, many years. So, so you didn't it think was, it was a prank, at least. No, well, I didn't think it was a prank until my, my friend Torsten Person <laughs> said, this is not a prank. And I, thought, <laughs> I never thought it was a prank. Why is he telling me that? <laughs> messing with my head. 
<laughs> He's trying to make me think it might be a prank. Right, trying to psych you out. Carson <laughs> is a very funny, very playful guy. That's awesome. Well, your work has proven that you really have to look at the teeny tiny details to understand these big macroeconomic trends across the world that we talk about on our show. And you said during your press conference at Princeton that measurement is at the center of what you do. So using that as a lens, can you walk us through your work that won you the Nobel? Oh, yes. <laughs> but one of the things the Nobel Committee was very generous with was citing a broad swathe of work. So it's rather difficult to um, take any piece of it and say, you know, this is how I started doing this. This is what led me in this direction. But I remember, you know, very, very, very early on, I think even before I had a PhD or before I'd even thought of getting a PhD, um, and in the days when there were no computers, when you would sit in the library and copy out numbers from statistical abstracts or from reports. And I remember even then thinking, boy, this is really interesting. Now, of course, it's the most boring <laughs> work in the world, but I would look at these numbers and, you know, with a pencil in one hand and an eraser in the other hand, and say, well, you know, what do these tell us? And do these fit with the way we think about these things? And then you sort of realize that maybe they sort of didn't, mm. or maybe they sort of did. So I remember that activity of just copying down these numbers and peering at the data um, being just very instructive for me and quite enjoyable in a way that I wouldn't have anticipated. Sort of therapeutic? <laughs> it's sort of therapeutic, but it was also, it turned out to be quite scientific. Um, and for me, you know, one of the greatest things in recent years has been the availability of fast graphics mm. um, so that you can draw pictures of data and sort of look at them. So here, all of a sudden, there's this tool which enables you to see these numbers and see patterns in these numbers. And, you know, I used to feel really bad <laughs> that people would say to me, so what's your hypothesis? You know, why don't you have a hypothesis? You should be testing a hypothesis. And then I would say, I just like playing with the numbers. <laughs> and I play with the numbers and try to see patterns in them. And then that would relate to other hypotheses that I knew about or other theories that I knew about. Because I don't think it, where you start matters. It's always just this business of, you know, looking at the numbers, comparing them with what you know and what people think, mm -hmm. and trying to pull the two things together, interpret one in terms of the other, both directions. So you've looked into things, looking at these these small numbers, um, trying to figure out if they've been measured right, and, you, and you've applied it to things like consumer spending and savings, um, well-being and poverty. Um, I mean, how did you get interested in that vein of work? And um, I, I guess what have you found? What have been some of the big conclusions that you've been able to make from your work? Again, I, I'm, you know, one of the things you do if you measure things is you're really standing on the shoulders of others. I mean, it's not like you come up with a blinding theory that no one's ever thought about before. Many other people have done that, but that's really not what I do. And I think in several cases just being really meticulous about things and really, you know, pulling things apart and trying to figure out how they hold together, I did come up with things that people really didn't know about before. And, you know, we did a lot of work on um, collecting and processing prices in India and figuring out what it costs for people to live in India. And then that gave new insights on ways in which you could measure poverty, because after all, you know how much people spend in money, but you don't really know 
what they're getting for that unless you know the prices of things. So I've done a lot of work over the years in trying to find ways of combining these prices into cost of living index numbers um, and also collecting the prices. What sort of prices can you use? I know it sounds sort of tedious, but it doesn't to me. <laughs> so, I mean, let's let's zoom in on India a little bit then. How Just how do you scrutinize consumption in a place like that? There's you know, 600 villages, literacy no, rates. No, there's about a million villages. Sorry, I thought I said 600,000. <laughs> that oh, was not sorry. right. sorry. <laughs> okay, sorry. I thought you said 600. I, I thought, misspoke. Oh, oh, oh. According to the 2001 census, there are about 600,000 villages. That's about right. Yeah. 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 Um, so that's a lot. And, and you know, <laughs> it's probably even more than that now, given how old that data is. Um yeah. I mean, how do you how do you know the data then is correct? How how do you look at prices and consumption and you compare them to official statistics? I mean, what sort of hurdles can there be in finding good measurements and using good measurements and, and the widespread use of good measurements? Well, you know, that problem you're talking about, which is given, you know, 600,000 or whatever the number is, how do you... How do you find out about all of them? was actually solved in India in the 1940s by Indian scientists who really pioneered this. What you do is you take a statistical sample. So you randomly select some villages and you look at them, and they can stand in for the villages as a whole. But then your other question is, is how do you know this is right? Yeah. Well, that's when it, there's really no substitute for sort of peering at the numbers and saying, does this make any sense? And can I square this with other things I know? And are these numbers consistent with these other numbers? And does this picture make any sense? And if it doesn't make any sense, maybe the world is different from what we thought, or maybe there's something wrong with the data. And you're always trying to juggle both of these things at the same time. And a little bit about that also is true of my work on happiness. For yeah. I think most people, like most economists, are very ambivalent about this. I mean, they think happiness is incredibly important. And it's certainly something that gets a lot of public attention when you write about it. Um, I think my work on happiness is, is the only thing I've ever done where I've heard people in the supermarket talking about it, for instance. And there was an episode of um, Orange is the New Black where they <laughs> talked about it. You know. So it certainly is things that are very interesting people, but many people are skeptical as to whether if you ask people, you know, did you experience a lot of happiness yesterday or, you know, on a scale of zero to ten, how's your life going? Right. They, they really wonder about whether those numbers can be treated seriously or not. So and this is the link between the, income and happiness, the link between income and happiness. Well, that's one of the things we looked at. So that's a very good example. I mean, you've got these happiness numbers, and you say, well, what would happen if those weren't linked to income at all? You know, And then you say, well, maybe these happiness numbers don't really mean anything, or maybe it's just true that income doesn't really matter. And you know, we came out with a bit of both. Um, which is that um, this is the work I did with Danny Kahneman, which is nice now because he's got two Nobel laureates instead <laughs> <laughs> of one. So maybe it's even more credible. But um, that was, you know, what we found is that for people's emotional life, like did you feel a lot of happiness yesterday or did you feel a lot of stress yesterday? You know, if you had less than about $75,000, those things were much worse than you had more of that. But if you had more than $75,000, you know, you didn't experience much more happiness than you did provided you had 75000 So we concluded from that that your emotional life depended on um, sort of having a freedom not to worry about money. You know, I grew up pretty poor, not poor compared with, you know, people in India or Africa who are really poor, but poor enough so that 
the worry about money really cast a pall over your life a lot of the time. Mm. You know? And so I'm. And this say, was in this was in Scotland. Yeah, you know, people would say, "Come out for a beer," and I think, "Oh, that would be lovely," but I really can't afford to come out and have a beer. Mm. And I think those things do undermine people's well-being. You know, friendship is a terribly important thing for people's well-being. And if you're scraping money and worrying about the last few cents, then I think that gets in the way. But then we find out these other things about how is your life going, you know, rating your life altogether. That seems to keep on going up no matter how much money you have. Well, speaking of money and and income and poverty, things along that vein, the World Bank just said last week that the number of people living in extreme poverty is set to fall to the lowest on record this year, about 9.6% of the global population will live on less than $1.90 a day this year. And that's the first time that rate has dropped below 10%, and it also compares to about 37% in 1990. So that's pretty big progress. Um, So looking at global poverty and and what many people consider to be one of your most important contributions, um, which is your work looking into that, how much more progress is there to do on the front of global poverty and and how do we get there? Well, how you get there, let me postpone that for a minute because that's the hard one. Yeah. Um, These numbers you quoted, I'm not sure that one should take those very seriously, but the decline from 37 to 10 You should take that very seriously indeed, Mm -hmm. meaning that things have gotten a lot better. Mm -hmm. So that's that's statement one, and it's got to be true. And it's just the most wonderful thing about the world over the last 30 years. So that's really terrific, and I think it's got to be right, because it squares with all sorts of other things we know. The decline, you know, the actual amount. Right. I'm not sure totally relevant. the other thing, of course, is that even with 10%, that's 700 million people. You know, that's twice the population of the United States, or more than twice the population of the United States. And those people are living in something pretty close to total destitution. And indeed, it would be like trying to live in the United States on about two bucks a day. And if you imagine that, that's pretty hard to imagine. Yeah. And I think that's not far from being the right comparison, though, you know, in warmer climes, people don't need to spend as much on fuel or on healthcare or on clothes and so on as we would have to here. But just think of meeting, you know, food and basic expenses out of two bucks a day. So those people are really, really, really very poor. And also, one shouldn't just count poverty in terms of material deprivation. So a lot of these people, um, you know, don't have particularly healthy lives. And a lot of there are a lot of kids in Africa who are still dying before their fifth birthday from totally preventable diseases. And the children in India, something like half of them, are so short and so small as kids that you know if you took them to a pediatrician here, the doctor would say, "My God, you know, we really got to do something about this kid." Way, way off the charts. And half of all kids in India are like that. So there's a lot to be done. Um, now, how exactly to do it? Um, and, you know, one of the more controversial things I've written about is I don't think um, direct aid to very poor countries is very productive. Mm. And I think a lot of progress in India and China, which is the big success stories and the rate of growth at least, the rate of reduction of poverty are ones where aid has not been very important. 
And we're talking about aid from foreign governments. From foreign governments. But, I mean, I think countries have to look after their people. And a lot of these countries, including India a lot of the time, are not very effective at providing public services. You know, getting all the kids vaccinated, doing mother and child, um, you know, prenatal and postnatal care. So it's really about government, you know, being able to take care of its people. Absolutely. Well, A, wanting to. Mm Mm-hmm. And B, being able to. Yeah, those are two different things. capacity problem. Yeah. You wrote a book in 2013 called The Great Escape that looked at inequality on a global level spanning almost three centuries. The same subject got the French treatment just a year later by Thomas Piketty, his book uh, Capital in the 21st Century. And since then, the topic of inequality has become almost ubiquitous around the world. Granted, Piketty's book was just about twice as big. I prefer the more concise version. (laughs) Um, Well, the public preferred the larger version. (laughs) I would say that's up for the big. In the last couple of days, I've been outselling almost everybody. (laughs) That's right. You got the last laugh there. So not sure about that. <laughs> well, since then, the the topic of inequality has become almost ubiquitous. Why is that? Where is inequality the worst? Um, and why is it on the tips of everyone's tongues right now? It's a really good question. I mean, you know, these are like social movements. It's like saying, you know, why did it, why you know when I was twelve was everybody looked out of your window and everyone was playing with hula hoops. Um, so there are a certain amount of fashions, but it's terribly important. And, you know, uh, Piketty and his co-author, Emmanuel Saez, you know, did a huge public service by looking at the data in new ways and just by pure measurement exercise and showing this incredible increase in wealth at the very top of the income distribution. And I think that paper, which was written maybe... 20 years ago now, quite a while, 17 years, um, really did put the cat among the pigeons because there, there was really just this feeling that here was something we didn't know about. Um, there was this extraordinary rise in inequality. And then over time, it seemed to be the case that that was happening in many, 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 not every, but many countries around the world. So I think this is terrific. I'm, I'm very keen that we have this debate um, about the good parts of inequality and the bad parts of inequality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's not a one-sided thing. So y- you can't say it, the world would be a better place if there was no inequality. There may be an optimal amount of inequality, but I don't know what it is, and neither does anyone else. But that's the sort of thing that people might be thinking about. And it may be that when inequality gets very severe, which is the sort of thing I've written about in the book and worried about, is that then you begin to lose things that you really care about. I mean, Justice Brandes had this wonderful quote about how, you know, democracy and extreme inequality are not compatible in the long run. And, you know, that's something that I think we should really, really worry about. And many people do. It's also become, I mean, inequality has become a very politicized thing at this point, too. I mean, have you had any political people calling you, any presidential candidates, possibly? (laughs) No. Thank goodness for that. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's become very political because, of course, you know, as my work and others would predict it would, because, after all, people are trying to use money to affect the political process. 
Well, um, I guess the biggest question that remains is what's next? You know, you've you've already run won the most prestigious prize that you can get as an economist or in many other fields. That is, uh, what's next? You just trying to get back to work or <laughs> yeah, what's I, new I for like you? To try to get back to work. <laughs> just trying to get caught Look, up. I'm, having, on I'm the having a lot of fun. I'm having a lot of fun. I mean, it's fun to talk to you, um, and it's been fun. Um, actually reading the many, many nice things that people have said about me and not necessarily written to me, you know, reading some of the stuff in the press has been a real treat and the Nobel thing. I don't really know what next, and I think I've talked to several previous laureates. I mean, Princeton is a great place, and there's a fair number of them. Right, right. no shortage there. <laughs> no shortage here, right. Um, though I was actually thinking, you know, there are only two British-born Nobel laureates in economics. And both of us were born in Scotland, so, you know, which is a tiny part of the United Kingdom. Right, so Scotland I don't know what that story is the answer. Um, I, I think it's something I'm going to have to seriously think about um, because this opens up all sorts of possibilities. And on the other hand, I thought my life was pretty good before this, and I have lots of good things I'm working on, and I would really like to go on working on those. So if I can resist all the siren calls... I would like to do that, but maybe some of the siren calls will turn out to be very interesting. Yeah, and I'm interested to read further work from you on the increase in middle-age mortality here in the U.S. too. I think that sounds really interesting and also, as you've described it, terrifying. Yep. All right. Well, last a bit of fun, and then we'll let you go. Okay. Um, big question. It's probably the biggest question you've been asked since <laughs> Monday. Are you on Twitter? No, I'm not. There are people pretending to yeah, be Yeah, you have Twitter. an imposter on Twitter right now. Um, yep. Well, I'm always on Twitter as part of my job. And, well, at least I like to say it's part of my job. <laughs> I wanted to read out just a couple tweets that people wrote after the news broke. So yeah. Justin Wolfers over at Peterson said, If there's an economist you should want to be when you grow up, it's Angus Deaton. Hard news. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Yeah. And then... Um, Another professor over at Harvard, Angus Deaton, is the Obi-Wan Kenobi of economics. So, you know, are you okay with being Obi-Wan Kenobi, or is there someone else that you would like to be? No, I'm very happy being who I am. And those comments um, from Amitabh Chandra and Justin, you know, they were as wonderful as I'm sure you would imagine they would be. These are very serious, top-flight academics, and when they say things like that, it really touches my heart. I personally think that you might be more of an Albus Dumbledore, in my opinion. You know, this great <laughs> probing professor, great sense of humor, but also cares about the well-being and happiness of both wizard and mankind. It's just my two cents. I, <laughs> I think you should tweet that. <laughs> I'll do it. I'll do it, definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been thank such you. a pleasure having you. It's been a real treat. And thanks to all of you for listening to Bloomberg Benchmark. We'll be back next week as usual. And until then, you can find us on Bloomberg.com as well as on iTunes and Pocket Cast and Stitcher, all these apps, where, as always, we beg you to rate, review, and subscribe to the show so more listeners can find us. Do rate us. You can also reach us on Twitter at, at DanielMossDC, at Tori Stilwell, and at AkiEto7. Star Wars metaphors, welcome. And all the Harry Potter jokes. We love this. See you guys next week. Thank you.